Welcome to the Start Here podcast for web development. I'm Keith Monahan, And I'm Dane Miller. And we're here to show you how to build a career in web dev. You can find us online at starthere.fm. Hi, Dane. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Fantastic. I am getting ready to go on a vacation. Family reunion. Nice. Where to? Uh, we're going up to Port Townsend, Washington. It's a gorgeous area up there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Good coffee in Washington. That's what I've heard. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've stopped drinking coffee. It kind of, the acid doesn't feel so good. But um, tea, I drink tea. I don't know if they have good tea up in Washington. You'll have to find out. I will. I'll come back and let you know. So how's your week been as far as web development goes? It has been a roller coaster, actually. Um, I've been putting out a lot of, uh, a lot of fires, actually. We've had um, different issues here and there. And so there hasn't been as much building as I would like, but there's been a lot of support, a lot of working with clients. And these are like production issues mainly? Um, yeah, you know, well, like, so we do, we, we host email for a lot of our clients. And so there's been some email issues and um, kind of some server issues. And so we've just been working through that. It's been, it's been very exciting. Yeah, it's always a, you know a huge challenge when there's a bunch of production issues. I'm glad you guys have gotten that cleared up. Yeah, definitely. So it's good. How was your week? Uh, pretty pretty uneventful. There's no production issues. That's good. Um, might have some new clients coming down the pipe. Uh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of just normal sort of day to day work though. Mm-hmm. Working on a new iOS app. That's fun. Sweet. Yeah, that's cool. Do you, do you code Objective-C? Uh, I try to sometimes. I mean, I do occasionally. I have like a little hobby app that I'm building, a timers app. But mm-hmm. um, this one is just for the, the place that I work at. Basically, we're building a, uh, you know, a sort of a podcast player interfacing with a with a certain other. There's some sort of hidden features right now until mm-hmm. it's launched, but that we're building a podcast app. Okay, cool. cool. Yeah. That's exciting. That's kind of fun. Yeah, it's challenging and it's fun because the podcast app, as I was telling you earlier, it's like one of those things where it just grows in complexity mm. and you can't really find a cap to it. It just keeps going. Yeah, there's no such thing as, oh, hey, I have a simple idea for this thing. Yes, exactly. It doesn't exist. Well, they always start super simple, right? Well, yeah, but that's what it always gets more complex. Yeah. Hmm. That's fun, though. Yeah, so that's what I've been doing this week. Today, we're going to talk about what it takes to launch your first website. Yeah. We're going to cover a lot of different considerations from like just the very basics that are required to launch your website to a lot of other things that you need to consider when launching your website that aren't necessarily required, but that are yep. good to do. Yeah. We wanted to take you through the whole process sort of step by step as though we were doing it. So as though we were about to deploy a website that we just built maybe over the weekend uh, and just take you through what we think about. And maybe that will add value to you next time you go to do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right now, let's let's think, let's consider that you have a website you've built. It's on your computer. You've got the files and pictures and all that stuff. It's on your computer somewhere. Now, what do you do? So for me, I mean, we could both say what we each do, obviously. But for me, I guess the first thing I'll start with is evaluating which I'll start with the domain first, mm-hmm. usually. Um, probably I will have the domain purchased before the idea. So before the thing is actually built. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you come actually, up with the name before you start building the, the, the product? 
Yeah, I like to like see the name in my head and see the idea sort of in my head that way. Mm -hmm. So I I feel like it, uh, that helps me. And also, when you purchase a domain, it's kind of like an investment. Mm. So you you kind of are saying to yourself, "I'm committing myself to build this at some point." Yeah, but let's be honest. How many how many domains do you own right now? Well, I don't. I'm not one of those people that compulsively okay. purchases domains. But I mean, I know some people that are that have hundreds of domains, right? But oh wow, the ones that I do purchase, I try to be very specific. I literally only have the projects that I've done. So oh, that's good. I try to yeah, I try to use it that way. And if you're somebody that's new to this, like that's listening to this, and you don't have any domains, I would encourage you to do it that way to not buy hundreds and hundreds of domains. Mm -hmm. Although that can be a different. You know, that's actually a financial thing as well. But um, actually just purchase the ones that you want to work on and it can be like a commitment thing for yourself. Yeah. You know, I would probably start with like one domain that's kind of going to be your primary domain, maybe for your personal website. And then if you want to launch, you know, other websites, you could do them as subdomains of that one as opposed so that, to... So that, that brings up an interesting topic though, Keith. Like this is the first website they've built. Mm -hmm. So let's pretend that now most people, are they going to have it be a personal website where it's all about them? And if so, would you use your name.com or would you actually make it like quirky? Like, you know, the funny lady.com, like, mm -hmm. you know how there's two different schools of thought there. Right. Yeah. So you could, your domain name could be literal for what it is or yeah. something fun that might be more memorable. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, I guess what I was getting at is that, you, you know, a listener may have an idea for um, a product or a website, and you know, if I did, if if I went out and bought a domain for every, you know, every idea I had that I was starting to build, I had, you know, I'd have tons. But what you can do is you can start with a primary domain, whatever you end up calling it, and then you could just add your website as a subdomain or something like that, just to get it up there and get it live, kind of test it, have fun, play with it, share it, and then you know, when it's built move it to its own domain maybe. Yeah, for sure. And I think another thing that you can consider the listener when when buying your first domain, you'll often have an idea for a product or a project or a brand. So you'll be like theplannergirl.com and you'll think mm -hmm. to yourself like that's awesome and that's quirky and that's a great little brand and that's true it is. But you have to keep in mind you're you're penciling yourself into that forever, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas you could be your name.com like I could be danemiller.com if that's available. And then it would allow me to hold all the projects that I'm working on. So it becomes more valuable to you if you drive traffic to something that contains multiple projects that you're working on. Mm -hmm. So for this to be your first website, definitely think about that because I've actually just met some people that have run into that branding issue and they, mm -hmm. they've needed to rethink. And so it can be a problem. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that first website, the first domain you buy can kind of be your primary, like, home on the internet where you yeah. kind of do a lot of things from. And so when you're naming it, maybe try to future-proof it. So yep. it, this should it should be something that you don't mind sharing to friends and family and, um, you know, potential employers. So yeah. that's something to think about as well. Yeah. Agreed. Mm -hmm. In our last episode, the Web Dev Toolbelt, we talked about a few different places you can buy some domains and some different tools you can use to search for some domains. So we're not going to go into that. But let's just say that you've got your website built, you've got your domain name purchased, and you're ready for some hosting. The place that you buy your domain doesn't necessarily have to be the same place where you host your website files. So they can be two different places. And I think that's how most people end up doing it 
at, at this level. They have one place that's kind of their primary go-to place to buy domains. Like, how do you do it, Dane? Well, so uh, for, if you're just brand new to this space, having two separate places to host and to have your domain purchased can be kind of complicated. And also, mm. when you're more on the advanced side, you'll probably have a lot of accounts to manage and people don't like that. So, you know, it affects both levels of people, I think. But there's certain things like HostGator where you can actually go and it will allow you to buy the domain and buy the hosting. Hmm. And that was pretty Which is cheap, interesting. Right? Yeah, it's actually $3 a month for their seed, for I think it's like their hatchling plan. And that's really good value, actually. I use that for some of my personal projects. And then you can go ahead and get the domain right there so it manages it for you. Um, the problem with that, though, is you have to keep in mind that it's kind of nice to just use a site like Hover or Namecheap or Gandhi to manage all your domains so that you mm -hmm. literally can see them all. Right. So that's kind right. of important to be able to see everything that you bought and manage it. Whereas on a thing like HostGator, you can't really do that. You have to log into each account separately. Okay. And that can be a huge pain in the butt. Hmm. Um, and that can be a huge pain. But then what you want to do, I think, is to go with a separate route, even though it's a little bit more of a, a separation there. Um, that's just what I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I do as well. I think I have all of mine at Namecheap. I use hmm. Hover. Hover. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so there's disadvantages and advantages to both. If you want to get something up quick and on the cheap, it sounds like HostGator is a pretty good option. I've never used it, but it sounds pretty decent. So um, caveat all of this with the fact that I'm almost certain that there's going to be a percentage of people that were, perhaps are listening to this that have a domain on GoDaddy. Oh, okay. And we've all migrated from GoDaddy. I think maybe you have as well. If you're listening to this, you probably migrated away as well for a number of reasons that we don't have to go into, but they're just not the best moral or ethical company at all. So everybody well, and, tries and to just... Techno technically as well. I mean, if you're on a shared hosting plan, sometimes it seems like there's... We mentioned this in the last episode. Sometimes it seems like their servers are kind of overloaded. Or they're yeah. just not very fast in some cases. And so yeah, in general, true. especially if you're running a WordPress site, if it's on a shared hosting at GoDaddy, it, it seems to run considerably, noticeably slower than even a shared hosting plan on other other places, just right. in, like in my personal experience. And that's good to note. Um, but actually, Hover will do a domain transfer concierge service for you. So they will literally get the domain, like you give them your account, and they will get your domains and bring them over for you. Nice. So if you want to go with a place that just is super easy, I would definitely choose Hover. Okay, yeah, because there are some technicalities to actually moving a domain from yeah. one registrar to another, and so it sounds like they'll take care of that. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's assume you've got your domain now, you've figured out your hosting, and you, you're ready to deploy. So you want to send your files up to the host. And we'll get into how to do that in just a second. Yeah. But there's some things to think about before you before you do that. Um, and some of these things fall between the cracks, but they're good to consider for a number of different reasons. I guess the first recommendation I have, and it's probably the biggest, and it can it can affect your how quickly your your website loads. It's to optimize your images. So we're yes. talking about not only resizing the image so that if you're displaying your image at say you know 400 pixels square that your image is actually 400 pixels square because you could use css to scale that down but then you're loading you know way more way more content than you need to so rescale it down to, to the size 
only the size it needs to be. But then also to optimize it, it's talking about optimizing the quality. So you can compress it, you can use like JPEG, and then you can cha change the quality instead of 100% down to like, I don't know, I usually do like 60%. That essentially removes a lot of extra information from the picture that you can't notice. Um, but that might be there, like if you wanted to print the image, you would want all that there. But for the web, um, decreasing the, qual uh, the quality a little bit is just fine. Agreed. Yes. So there are a number of ways to do that. You can do that through WordPress when you save for um, save for devices. Um, but you can also, if you're using Word WordPress, you can use a plugin called Smushit, smush.it, that will uh, that will automatically optimize the quality when you upload it. So how do you optimize images, Dane? So I do all my work in Rails. So we have some tools in Rails. Um, I think they're consistent across any Nix platform, such as uh, any Unix-based platform. So uh, Image Magic is one of those tools. And there are a lot of gems that sort of sit between uh, image magic on the terminal and as a system level utility and then image magic, uh, in your application, which is quote unquote, the API for image magic, right? So I'll just use that, um, which mm. is something that you kind of install into your app, quote unquote. It's sort of like a WordPress plugin. You can think of it that way. Um, if you're using Rails, uh, there's a bunch of gems. If you just search for image magic under rubygems.org, uh, you'll find a bunch of great ones sorted by popularity. Cool. And I just, I usually just go with the most popular one. Okay. So that's a, that's a good way if you're on Rails. Hmm. Yeah. It's fun. Awesome. So, um, optimize your images. That's very important. Um, okay. So not only does it take up more bandwidth, but it slows down your site. And one of the things that's important as far as your page speed. I mean, besides the fact that a slow website, um, you know, a user is going to jump, they're going to bail if your website is too slow. What Do you know how, how long it is before someone typically bails is like, like 10 seconds or something? Well, there's two statistics that are alarming, and I don't know either one of them, but one is like the video bounce rate, uh, the time at which you bounce from a video if mm -hmm. it doesn't load. And then there's the, um, the website one, the website one is really tiny. It's like, it's like four seconds, right? Yeah. It's in between, it's anywhere from, I mean, I don't know the statistic exactly, but I know for a fact it's between four and 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. So regardless, whatever it is, that's pretty incredible. So your website has to be fast as, as possible. Right. So that's one reason to optimize. The other reason is that if you're looking to have your website show up in a search engine, and we know that Google is the um, like the primary search engine. They they actually take your website speed into consideration when they rank you. So if you want to be at the top, yes. your website, among other things, among many other things, your website has to be fast. Yeah. So yeah, Google will crawl your site, and the time it takes for the request to return data, if it's a really long time, then Google will dox you. So you got to be mm -hmm. careful. So as we're talking about SEO, another thing that is important to remember when you're getting ready to launch your website is, and this has to do with images again, it has, um, it's important to use alt tags on your images. That's in the, the HTML, uh, that's the HTML image attribute. Because for one, so there's three reasons really. If, if your, if your image doesn't load, then that alt tag provides a description of that image, which is important for the user. If the user can't see 
and they're using some sort of a screen reader, then then the user has some sort of indication about what the image would be. But also for SEO, because Google reads those alt tags. And mm -hmm. so that's another way if you if you articulate very well what that image is about in the alt tag, um, that can help your SEO as well. And also just the fact that you're supposed to have alt tags, the more HTML valid or the more valid your HTML is, the better. So mm -hmm. Google will, will take that into consideration as well. Yeah, technically it does. your website doesn't validate unless your images have alt tags. Any other things we should consider here before, the, before someone launches a website, Dane? So yeah, I think one thing is that people really need to step back and think about the user experience or the UX um, and the UI as well when they're building these sites. So let's say that this is a person's personal site and it's their name.com and it's got a picture of them and some text. You will probably build that site and you'll feel really stoked that you were able to get through all the technical um, know-how that was required to do that. And that's great. But you also have to think like, okay, as a user, I'm going to visit the site and do what? So, I mean, for a personal site, it's kind of ambiguous, right? You're just kind of looking, maybe you're just looking at the person and then you're leaving. Uh, but maybe you have like an about page and it's like a resume and you're trying to get recruit, like, um, people to click that or something. I mean, you have to really take these things into account, like mm -hmm. what your action and what your purpose of having this website is. Mm -hmm. Um, and it can be ambiguous. That's totally fine. It's just that the more ambiguous it is, the more challenging it's going to be for you to put yourself in the mind state of the users visiting it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have to consider what your user is going to experience when you get there and like what you want them to do. I mean, if it's just a, a site you're throwing up just for the heck of it, and I guess if you're not asking the user to do anything, then, then it may not matter so much. But if yeah, you want the user to biggest. do something, then... Then well, that you always want the user to do something. I mean, even if you say you don't, you have a website for a reason. Mm -hmm. Either it's a joke or it's just a picture of you and that's it. You you still want the user to do something, right? Like, mm -hmm. So you want mm -hmm. copy that gets their attention if you're just like a one-page site. I, You know, I feel like that's a misnomer. Like you always want somebody to do something, right? Yeah, I guess that's true. And so, you know, following this this line of thought you'll become familiar with the term call to action. Yeah. And so when you have a website and you want somebody to do something, the the area of the website where you want them to take action, right? That's the call to action. So maybe it's a button. Maybe your your whole purpose for this website is to have somebody click on this button that maybe takes them somewhere else or it does something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But or maybe it's just a read, right? Like so your call oh, yeah. to action could be a paragraph and mm -hmm. that's it and then you'll have to make that paragraph really uh, stand out and look really nice uh, mm -hmm. and be quick to load, right? Maybe larger text than your typical, yeah. you know, 12 point or 16 point or whatever it is. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So so people should think about the, the user experience when they're, when they're building their site. Here, is, here are a few good tricks to use if you want to think or put yourself in the mind state of somebody visiting your site. These are things that big agencies do and maybe you know, you haven't been exposed to, but that's why we're here to sort of pass this down. So basically you can literally take your site to your uh, parents or to your friends or to your girlfriend or, or, you know, whoever, and basically get them to use it and literally stand behind them and watch them use it. Mm -hmm. And that's like a really neat trick that nobody ever does and nobody ever thinks about because it just, 
you know, it's like non-intuitive in a way. Uh, but big digital agencies, they do it all the time. They bring people in and they call it focus testing or focus grouping or, mm-hmm. or some, some variation of that. And then basically they will just watch people use their site and they won't do anything else. And then they'll take notes and then they'll revise the site and ask questions after the person's done. Yeah. So user testing. And that's, that's on yeah. a, um, I don't think people do it enough because you can get really good feedback by watching people yeah. use your site. And there's some real, in the next couple of years, there's some real innovations coming in this area. There's some stuff coming out that will track the user's eyeballs with their webcam. Oh, and I've been wondering about that. Yeah, it'll let you analyze where people are looking because attention is becoming like a priced commodity. <laughs> so the where somebody looks is almost going to be like the future of advertising, right? Like it is now, but it will be even more targeted, which is interesting. That's incredible. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I can. <laughs> it's like monetizing the human experience. Well, I don't want to do that part, but I would love to use it for my own sites, right? To see like how people are, are utilizing them and what are they looking at that button? I really want them to and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I would, I definitely want that information, but at the same time I have this, I don't know. It would be exploited. Yeah, exactly. I, I know. Yeah. Uh, so a couple more things we wanted to mention about the UI, the user experience. Um, whenever you're you're like on your contact page whenever you're listing your address or a phone number or an email address. Um, and I, as a side note, I mean, the internet is pretty big and there's crazy people out there. So just consider what information you're putting out there. Um, yeah. Whenever you're Good listing... Rule, gold rule of thumb is never put your real physical address out there. Mm-hmm. Although that rule has changed in the past couple of years. It used to be a hard and fast rule back when the internet first came out all the way up into about, you know, 2005 or something until web 2.0 really hit off. And then people started putting all their information online. Um, so, I mean, it's a personal choice at this point. Yeah. And, and maybe people started using it when they're signing up for services and things, but I don't know that I would ever just put it on my website. Yeah. I don't ever see a reason why, unless you run a business out of your house. And then I still Mm. don't see a reason I would get a PO box. I would do, I would do a separate PO box. Yeah. 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 It's just too, there's too many weird people out there. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. So, um, on the contact page, if you list your address, phone number, email address, make those links. Okay. It's really simple to take the address, um, put it in, in an anchor tag, and then find, I mean, if you're going to do the address, like a business address, um, go to Google Maps, yep. type in the address, and then copy the URL for that address and use that. Um, that's important. And then for the phone number, um, instead of um, instead of HTTP in front of the URL, you would use uh, TEL, T-E-L, and then plus one, and then just the full phone number. Yeah, and that's actually going to be really useful when uh, the new version of Mac comes out and you can make phone calls from your computer mm-hmm. that will sync to your phone. So like there'll be oh. millions of people with this OS and your phone number is just one click away and they don't have to pull out their cell phone. So you always want to be thinking, how can I reduce friction? So whatever I want my user to do, how can I reduce the amount of steps I want them to take to get there, right? Mm-hmm. So that's um, really interesting. I had heard about, because yeah. with Skype, if you have Skype installed on your computer and maybe in your browser... You can use you can make calls that way, uh, but that's that's there's restrictions. You have to pay for the monthly Skype to make outbound phone calls. Yeah, but some people do have that service. Yeah, some people do. And so if you know, I do. I typically use an anchor on the phone number for that, but then also for for mobile if somebody's on mobile because it's super easy to to tag. Yeah, there. I had no idea that Apple was going to link um, your computer with your phone. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I do use it for mobile. I think that's the coolest thing is when I go to a website and they have their phone number and I just tap it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so great. Um, but yeah, they're going to be, they have this new feature coming out where basically you can send text messages from your Mac, not just to iMessages, but to anybody that has a, an actual phone uh, that is an Android or whatever. But then also through you your phone will get an incoming call and then it'll pop up on your computer and you can take it with your Apple headset uh, plugged into your computer. It's going to be awesome. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, and it's really good if you just want to take, you know, your meetings from your laptop instead of having to juggle your phone around along with your computer. I think it'll be fun. Hmm. That is pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. I wish my computer did that now. Well, maybe in the future. Uh, I guess if, uh, if Microsoft Microsoft, <laughs> Microsoft won't ever do that. <laughs> That's sad. Oh, well. And so the last thing we wanted to mention about the user experience is that your website has to be responsive. So responsive web design is when the width of your web page responds to the width of the device, meaning it's the same exact website on a desktop computer as it is on a you know, laptop, tablet, and mobile phone. And it should um, look good and have a good user experience on all of those devices. And we encourage you to test all those devices too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to have a phone to test on an iPhone, Um or on an Android phone. There are websites that we will have links in the description. Keith, tell them where to go to find the links. You can go to starthere.fm forward slash webdev forward slash five for our show notes today. Yeah, and basically we're going to have all the websites that will allow you to emulate devices there. So you can use all those to test on an iPhone. You don't ever have to get it from your computer. Really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so when I'm developing, I'm constantly, well, not constantly, but when I'm working to make my sites responsive, I am, I'm in my, um, on my phone yep, all the time. We talked about SEO a little bit. So this is something that is incredibly important as well. If you want to be in the search engines, in fact, I would say this is probably like the foundational type stuff for search engine optimization. And this is how Google is going to find and kind of put your site in the same the category map. yeah on the map in yeah. the same category it's like places. The, this is required to actually have your site ranked for the keywords that you might have it ranked for right so it's like give us a little seo 101 yeah exactly so let alone ranking at the top this is just so you can actually rank so your your website needs to have a title tag uh, and a description and so the title is what's displayed in your browser tab when you go and you kind of uh, whatever it says up there, you can hover over it to see the whole tag. Whatever it says up there is is what you're going to see in in the Google search results. That's the title you see. And I believe, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, I believe it's about 70, 72 characters. That's the maximum that you can have in there. And then the description on the website is is what is shown in the search engine below that. And that gives a short synopsis about your website and so those things need to be dialed in because that is what people see in the search engine and so if it's just some gibberish or if google automatically has to pull that from your website then it may not be the best uh, call to action you know to, to go and click onto your website so those are the two most important parts as far as seo and, and we we consider that on-site optimization that's seo optimization for like on your website. All right, so Dane, what are some other things we should think about? Another thing that I find really interesting is the mental um, 
states that you have when you're developing and deploying a website. And one of those states, even digital agencies and almost any company will have this state of a website is testing. So you have this phase of testing. And I really encourage you to go through those same states as a digital, as a digital agency would when you're building your own personal site. So those are uh, planning, sort of like strategizing, planning, uh, maybe preliminary development and like getting administrative stuff taken care of, mm. actual development, and then uh, administrative post development and then deploy, uh, testing and then deploying to staging mm-hmm. and then deploying to production. So you have all those stages and it's actually really helpful because you can think of each one as a sprint and it actually will lead, I mean, cause these projects tend to be kind of ambiguous, right? And it's difficult to actually accomplish them. But if you put, if you segment them up that way, it will be nicer, mm-hmm. uh, to do, I find Absolutely. for me personally. There's a reason um, there's a process is because it helps you think yeah. through what you need to think through when you should think through it and then if you do the small steps then when you you know your your website kind of builds itself just the project comes together exactly so the the whole point of me saying that is because say you did that preliminary de- development slash design and you did that ux thinking and you did that ui thinking well then when you go to the testing phase and you start to click on everything and you start going through everything and now you're at the end of the process you're not going to be running up into these issues where your design and your UX isn't meeting standards, mm-hmm. right? So you, if you think about everything in the segmented steps that they that the process allots for, at the end, you will just have the one job of testing. Um, and I say that because the testing phase is usually the phase that is the most, you know, it causes the most ruckus. Oftentimes people have to rewrite entire sections of their site in the more corporate worlds or, mm-hmm. you know, just it, it brings up a lot of stuff. So yeah. you want to make sure you are locked down by the time you get there. And let's let's say this. It is... I mean, obviously, it is considerably easier to draw a new wireframe of your website than it is to rewrite the structure of your website with HTML, PHP, or whatever. It's a good code. point. Yes. So, you want to do all of the thinking on paper before you before you have to start coding. I know you don't. I mean, I I, I don't. I never want to, but I'm always glad that I did when I do. And then finally, you definitely want to make sure that you're tracking your users to see what kind of response you're getting on your website. So, I mean, there's a few different options, but pretty much the industry standard is Google Analytics. And you can set up a an account to, you know, create your your analytics profile and then add your website. And then you just add a small snippet of code to the site that will track your users. And you can go in there and you can see how many people have visited your site each day and some other really interesting information. So those are some things that we think you should consider, you know, before you launch the site um, that sometimes get missed. And in fact, uh, we we totally forgot to add the Google Analytics to our webpage, uh, the starthere.fm, before we launched. It was like, what was it, like a week later we discovered we'd missed it? Yeah. Well, I think it was a couple of days. But, oh, okay. But I would, <laughs> I was definitely embarrassed. Yeah, I know. Me too. Anyway, so... And so, okay, so it helps to have a list of these things. So for, and maybe maybe we can try to come up with something, but um, at my job, I've created this document that helps me go through the process of things that I need to consider as I'm building and then before I launch and then after launch and all that kind of stuff. So once you have a flow down, it's good to write it down and then just kind of go through the checklist. Yeah. And it's really specific to the platform. 
right? So that we would love to provide you all a document that's like, here's everything you need to think about. And we're going to do an episode that is an outline of the entire development process. So the beginning strategy, strategy all the way to the end deployment. Um, but it, you know, to provide you a list is really like a specific thing. If you're using WordPress, it's different than if you're using Rails. Mm-hmm. Um, for so deployment. just keep, right, for, for the whole process, right? That's I mean, true. Uploading the file is pretty much everything. So you kind of have to keep that in mind. And as you're building your first website, write down what was super challenging, write down what was easy and, and just bullet points. And then later when you're building your websites, you'll keep all those in mind, right? You'll be like, oh, you know, I'm going to automate this part or, or use this tool or plugin for this one because it took me three hours. Mm-hmm. And we say like write that. it down. And we really mean just open up a new document somewhere like in Google Docs or something and literally just list stuff out as you think of it. You will really appreciate having that list later on. And that's actually a really good point that we brought that up right now because we did want to close the episode just sort of touching on the difference between deploying and uploading PHP apps to Ruby on Rails or Python apps. So the, the difference between FTP and command line, really, CLI. Yeah. So this is the the where deployment comes in. Like how do you get your website from your computer to you know to the internet? Why don't you take us through the PHP path and then I'll take us through the Ruby path? Sure. Yeah. And I can, you know, I can provide you some, as far as my experience goes, if you're using a service like HostGator um, or like a lot of other web hosts, then they actually a lot of times have like a one, one click install for WordPress. And if that's the case, then deploying your WordPress site can actually be pretty easy. So if you're, if you've got WordPress set up on your computer, you can get, so you can use Duplicator and, you know, export the WordPress package from your local host and then you could like FTP that up to your up to your live site, run the duplicator script to install that, and you'd be good to go. And that's a pretty easy well, it's a pretty simple process, I think, um, for uh, for doing WordPress sites. And so it requires some some knowledge or, you know, experience with FTPing um, items to your site. And then also setting up database uh, databases on there as well. Um, the alternative is that if you wanted to use something like HostGator and do like the one-click install, you could actually just build your site live on your on your web host instead of on your computer. It's not quite as easy, but you wouldn't have to worry about the file transfers and stuff. Yeah, and that's uh, first start here.fm, the site that we have. That's what we did. So we edit it live, mm-hmm. or at least I do, um, and. I find it super helpful. Yeah, for small sites, editing live isn't too big of a deal. But if you yeah. get to a big site, you're definitely not going to want to, you know, edit stuff live just in case. You know, there's a soft chance you break something. Yeah, definitely. So how how do you deploy with with Ruby on Rails and other applications, Dane? So um, let's consider the fact that somebody came into this with a application that maybe they built in Rails following the Rails tutorial or Python following a Django tutorial. Those are two completely separate things. Um, maybe it's Node as well. A, a bunch of these um, are going to require a few things. Okay, So first, you're going to look at all the hosts that provide the best benefit for the platform you are, you're on. So for Ruby on Rails, sometimes it's Heroku because you can get an application up in less than two minutes, almost in less than a minute. Um, Literally, you install their command line, uh, their CLI, and then basically you run two commands from the terminal and your application gets copied from your local machine up to the server. Mm. And then the server is reset for you automatically. Nice. Um, and 
other providers such as AppFog and EngineYard will take PHP applications like Laravel. They'll take Node.js applications. Like we, we deployed at the, at the State Department, we deployed Node.js on EC2. Hmm. So it basically comes down to the fact that either you're going to be using FTP or a command line utility or just literally bash to copy the files that you need from your local machine up to a server using FTP or SSH, and then you're going to be restarting the server. So, I mean, that's basically when you boil it down to its ultimate simplicity, it's copy and restart, Mm -hmm. and then sometimes reload or or restart the database as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Ruby on Rails, there just happens to be a more automated solution. A bunch of tools are coming out with these automated solutions because this is the last thing developers need to be spending their time with. Yeah. Um, and you need to be focused on building great things, not like deploying them really. Well, I mean, you need to be focused on deploying them, but not like the process of deploying them. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty cool. So when I used duplicator on a site, let's see, I launched a site on Wednesday, I think, uh, to the live server. And so I think the whole process took me 15 to 20 minutes and that was time. Well, but that included setting up, setting up a new a new account on our on our servers and then you know adding the database doing the duplicator archive and then uploading it to the to the new server and then running the install and stuff like that so it it took that much time but it was fairly simple to do see the interesting thing about this is there's like a time efficiency ratio and i was you know so for i've used heroku for rails for years right Mm -hmm. um for clients, small and medium, but never big. And I just recently met a client that is pretty big and they're currently on Heroku and I was transferred all the code. So it's like, I'm in this new code base and it's on Heroku. And I'm the first th- thought I think to myself is, oh, wow, I've heard bad things about this host with really large scale sites. So, but the thing is, Heroku offers so much uh, value in efficiency for how to deploy and manage Ruby on Rails and even how to debug production issues. So literally you can uh, like tunnel your way into the production instance and then fire up a Rails console within like 35 seconds. And mm-hmm. then basically you can query the live application to deduce problems and maybe double check a database schema or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, same for migration, migrating the database, right? It's like one command uh, to migrate whatever data. And I know it's easy to migrate databases usually in other applications as well, but I mean, it's just one of those things where it's really neat. And so you have to keep in mind the efficiency for the specific platform mm-hmm. you're on. More, um, maybe it's a 15 minute process, but you're getting all this efficiency. Totally worth it. Right, right. Yeah, I think so. And and part of it comes down to getting used to whatever development environment you choose. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm definitely not as familiar or comfortable in the command line. Um, even though I would like to be soon. Right. And with that being said, why don't you give them an outline, Keith, of what the next episode is and how we're going to touch on exactly that topic of what development environment or what platform you want to develop on uh, might be. So we want to provide a nice overview of of the different server-side languages and frameworks and environments that you could you could choose to develop in. Um, and, you know, you kind of make this choice to begin with, and it doesn't necessarily lock you into that choice. And we don't, we hope that it doesn't, right? We want you to expand and to explore lots of different things. But we want you to stick with, a, you know, a particular language or, or 
environment for a while so that you can kind of uh, experience some efficiencies there and, and really get excited about building some things. And so we're going to cover some of the things we talked about, I guess, but in more, more in depth as far as some of the frameworks for PHP and for, um, well, Ruby on Rails is basically a framework uh, using Ruby. Yeah, exactly. So we want to provide you a nice overview so that just like the front end, um, we hope you got a good overview from the, the last couple episodes. Uh, we want to do that same job on the server side. So, you know, even if you're going to be a front end developer and you're making that choice now, I would suggest listening to these episodes in the future. Uh, be, well, this next one specifically on servers, even if you're inclined to skip it, because it's better to be aware, like, right? Mm -hmm. It's better to be aware of the full stack when you enter the job market so that you're not surprised by anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks for listening today. We want to introduce um, something we're pretty excited about. We want to help you out by reviewing your website and give you some feedback. So we want to do a website design review for you. And we'd like you to leave a submission. So leave your website, whatever you want us to review, in the comments of our show page today. You can find that at starthere.fm forward slash webdev forward slash five. And we will take some time and, and look over your, your website. Yeah, I'm really excited about this as well. But keep in mind, when you do submit your sites, it's a design-focused um, review. So user experience, user interface, design. But also, if it's just a Tumblr site that you built and maybe you've modified for like 30 minutes, submit that too. We'd love to do a, qu a quick critique. I mean, you can have the choice of making it public or not on the form, so it's not a big deal. Um, and we will you know, be respective of that choice. Yeah. So in the comment, just mention whether. Oh yeah, in the comment. Yeah, in the comment, just mention whether you want us to, whether it's okay for us to 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 publish the review or whether you just want some, uh, just some feedback personally. Yeah, because ideally we want other people to um, gain value from these reviews as well. So if it's not super personal, you know, tell us we can publish it and we will put it on a separate section of our site. Hopefully it'll drive some traffic to you um, in the future, but also uh, it'll add value to these other people. Perhaps they have similar sites, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe they, they have gone through some, some similar issues. So yeah, totally. we're excited about that. We want to help you guys. And so send us your sites. Let's take a look. Well, that is our episode for today. Thank you for listening. Uh, we hope you come back and listen next episode to episode six, where we talk about the backend server environment, languages, and frameworks. You can find me on Twitter at Keith Mon, K-E-I-T-H-M-O-N. And I'm Dane Miller on Twitter, D-A-I-N-M-I-L-L-E-R. Thanks. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. Bye.